Today, we're going to conclude our study through the book of 2 Thessalonians. So if you have your Bibles, would you please open up to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 6 through 18 today. And we're really going to receive some practical instruction uh, that I would consider very straightforward. And Paul dealing with those that may want to be in a right position spiritually. You know, oftentimes we can mask a deteriorating spiritual condition for only a certain amount of time before it begins to be exposed by the way that we interact with those that are around us. You know, it's only a certain amount of time before, you know, what's happening internally makes its way externally and we start to realize maybe I'm falling short of God's perfect plan. This is part two in a series that I've entitled, Don't Be Out of Order. You know, and there's nothing more frustrating than having something not work the way that it's supposed to work or for something to not fulfill its purpose the way that it's supposed to be fulfilling it. You know, we used the analogy last week of growing up as a, as a young kid and going to the arcade and having your favorite video game uh, have, a, have a message on it that just said, out of order. You know, we don't want to be out of order. We don't want to be in a place where we're not behaving the way we should be as Christians. And nothing can be more frustrating or even hurtful uh, as when Christians aren't acting properly or they're acting disorderly. In Galatians 6, verse 2, it says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You know, as Christians today, we need to be the type of people that bear one another's burdens. We help remove people's burdens, not add to them. And so today, as we look at our study in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, we're going to begin in verse 6 here where it says, But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly, and not according to the tradition which he received from us. For you yourselves know, verse 7, 2 Thessalonians 3, how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you. Nor do we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now, those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother." Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this portion of scripture that we're going to be looking at today. Lord, I know that in each of our lives, we have carried things with us this morning that we are wrestling with, uh, that are difficult. Lord, each family and each individual has their own spiritual attacks coming their way. I ask, Lord, that upon hearing this message today and studying this passage of scripture, Lord, that you would give us a greater understanding of what happens behind the scenes in people's lives. And Lord, how we can be gracious and how we can help those that we may not even realize need help. 
Lord, we ask that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit would say, and we commit this time to, of studying your word to you, Lord. Would you add your blessing to it? And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. You know, one of the things I've realized more and more is that even at church on Sunday mornings, people will come to church really burdened. They, they may even put on a very nice front. They'll smile, they, they'll be pleasant, you know, co show common courtesy. And inside, they're wrestling with their own struggles. They, they're having their own difficulties at their home or at their job and, or in their relationships. And then they'll come to church, you know, and, and, and they'll try to be in a place where they're saying, Lord, I want to receive from you. I want to hear from you. Lord, would you please speak to me? Lord, I want to do what's right. And not realize that there are other people that are in the same boat that they are. That they're hurting or they're maybe asking for wisdom or they're trying to find, you know, the best solution for their problem. Whatever it may be. And we'll come in contact with somebody that may have all of their own private things that they're wrestling with. And instead of helping each other or being gracious to each other, often it's the case that we'll unload on each other. Or maybe we use somebody to vent our frustrations or, you know, maybe it has nothing to do with them, but, you know, we lose our temper or everything that we wanted to say to someone else, we say to them. Or maybe we're not gracious to somebody that may have mistreated us, not realizing that, you know, they're having a really hard day. They must be really struggling if it's, you know, uh, overflowing out of their life now. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, Paul wrote, in his first letter to the same church, he said, We exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. There is nothing more discouraging than to bump heads with somebody that is a brother or sister in Christ. Or maybe be mistreated by somebody who says they're a Christian or calls themselves a Christian. And they may even be in your own church. If you're watching this from some other place or at some other point, you know, after this morning, you know, maybe you're in your own church. And maybe you're at odds with somebody. Maybe it gives you just not a nice feeling, you know, when you show up to church or when you think about that person. And you're wondering, how can it be that two Christians can't get along with each other? How can it be that brothers and sisters in Christ treat each other terribly? How is it that we're not being understanding or forgiving or gracious? Why is it that we're speaking in such a way that it's actually adding to someone's burdens, not relieving them? But here in 1 Thessalonians, as I reference from the first letter that Paul wrote, chapter 5, verse 14, he says, you know, warn those who are disorderly or warn those that are not behaving properly. They're, you know, maybe they're out of rank. Maybe they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. Maybe they're not exemplifying the lordship of Jesus in their life. And because God is a God of order and not disorder, things in the church are to be conducted in such a way that it represents godliness. Now, it's not the heart of the Lord to warn people for the sake of just exercising authority. You know, the warning of the, the unruly or somebody that might be out of, out of line is not something we should jump the gun on. You know, I think if we approached confrontation with a little more hesitancy and a little more graciousness, I think things would go a lot better than they seem to go. 
You know, when somebody is maybe not acting in love or, or treating somebody in an inappropriate way, you know, it often can be a natural, I would say, in our flesh response to maybe put that person in their place in no uncertain terms. You know, and often, if you've ever been in a place where you've been out of line and somebody very ungraciously came and confronted you, you get your back up. You get defensive. You know, you don't want to hear what they have to say. And maybe you would even go on the attack. Well, you know, well, you make mistakes too. And, you know, I know you're not perfect. And, you, and it turns into something that it's not meant to be. You know, it's not the heart of the Lord for us to speak or even to correct in such a way that is not constructive. You know, if you speak with those people, you'll be able to tell, I think even in a church setting, if they're going to remain unruly or if they'll receive what you said and change. You know, again, I think this speaks to the person that may be in a place where they think they're in charge or that their way is best or that their agenda must be fulfilled, even if it's directly, you know, in opposition to what God's word says. But when the church... And I would even say for you in your own family, if you're with your husband or with your wife or with your children, if you're communicating in such a way that is constructive, it's in love, it's coming from a sincere heart for uh, the, the betterment of all those that are involved. That it's not a place where you're venting your frustrations or communicating un, in an unloving way. You'll find that it's better received. And even in the church, when the church is purging itself with the living water of God's word, the members of the church will be able to utilize the word of God when dealing with relationships with other people. You know, often it's been said, you know, that the church is filled with a lot of imperfect people. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And then you get a whole bunch of imperfect sinners together in one spot that are trying to do the right thing. And sometimes, you know, things come out that ought not to be coming out. The way we communicate, that shouldn't be the way we communicate. You know, we'll say hurtful things, or maybe we talk behind someone's back, or, or maybe we're not very loving or forgiving. And those kind of things can really, really take its toll. In Romans chapter 15, verse 14, Paul wrote and said, Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you are also full of, go full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to admonish one another. And you know what's interesting? And this hits home for me, too, because before I'm a pastor, I'm a son, and then I'm a husband, and then I'm a father, and then I pastor this church. But what I have found that as spiritual growth takes place, it raises the bar for everyone. Everyone. As everyone is growing and everyone is maturing and everyone is pushing forward into the relationship with the Lord, you'll find that that level of excellence increases. You know, being a has-been athlete, I like using sports metaphors all the time. And it's one of those things like if you have somebody that's an excellent player and he works hard, it will tend to raise the game for everyone. You know, a lot of people said that about Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant and other all-stars where they, they raised the level of play for everyone in practice and it came out in the way that they played their games. And in our homes, 
You know, as the husband or as the, as the father, as the wife or the mother, as, as the spiritual maturity is, 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 is accelerating, is taking off, you'll find that the level raises for everyone. And if you take that idea, that concept, and put it into the church life, As everyone is growing and maturing, you will find that it raises the level of play, if you will. It raises the bar for everyone. And you start to see a church that might be in its baby stages with very immature baby Christians start to mature and get stronger. And then the areas that used to be pitfalls are now recognized as such, and they are skipped over. They are moved past. And all of a sudden, something that used to be, you know, the the hot thing that everybody was falling prey too is now like, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. I would never do that. That, that, That's completely against God. And you start to see the level of play raise for everyone. You know, in Ephesians 5 verse 9, it says, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And for us collectively as Vision City Church and then even collectively beyond that, the church that is the true church is to warn and comfort and uphold one another with patience. And so Paul, again, will instruct how the church should warn those that are acting in a way that they should not be. And he writes in verse 6 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We command you, brethren... In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he receives from us. Now, if you're reading along, I'm reading from the New King James Version. Now, God created things in order. There's to be order in the church. There is to be order in our homes. There is to be order in our personal lives and how we set up priorities and how we, you know, allow nothing to usurp the position of Jesus in our relationship, in our personal relationships. So Jesus is number one and then all my interpersonal relationships follow after that. You know, I remember also when I was, uh, when I was younger, you know, my brothers and I would go play, you know, basketball. We, we lived really the dream in high school, I think it was. And obviously, these are the good old days. But I remember, you know, we would get up and we would uh, go to the beach all day. And then about three or four in the afternoon, we would go to our gym that was called Los Caballeros in Fountain Valley. It was this little, little uh, sports club. And then we would play basketball from about 4 o'clock to 10 p.m. at night. And you think to yourself, what a life. I didn't even know I was born back then. I mean, what a, what a life we lived. What a blessing. And I remember there would be occasions where we didn't bring anything to drink. But we always counted on the vending machine that they had to be able to get a Gatorade or to get a water. And I remember, you know, walking up and one time we were dying of thirst. And, you know, I hit that button, put my money in, and it ate my, ate my quarters. And I remember going, come on. I'm dying of thirst over here, you know? And, the, and I was thinking to myself, why is this not working the way it's supposed to work? And it was so frustrating when things were not working the way that they were supposed to be working because the nature of that vending machine was to produce the product that I paid for and to produce it flawlessly and safely, and might I add, very chilled. 
You know, vending machines, that didn't work properly. You know, if you went to, to get something to, to drink or get like a snack and it shot something out at your face and hit you in the eye, you know, that you would say, you know, that machine's out of order. This thing's broken. I, I, this is not working properly. It's not fulfilling the function that it's supposed to be fulfilling. Now, yes, these are simple, simple stories. Yes, there are things that we probably all experience in some way or another throughout life. But the church is supposed to be the same way. The same thing applies to the church, that we're not to be out of order. There should be no sign posted on any of our lives saying out of order. There should be no church with a sign posted over it, out of order. Now, we can get out of order in a lot of different ways, stemming from, the, from, from forsaking the teaching of God's word to making up things that we feel uh, sound good to us, or even allowing culture to dictate what the church should be all about. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 33 and 40, it says, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. So let all things be done decently and in order. I don't know if you've noticed, but decency seems to be going out the window these days, just generally speaking. Are there decent people out there? Or where's the decency when, when you see the way that people treat each other? You know, Paul wrote to the church, do things decently. Do things in order. Do things in love and with goodness and with kindness and with patience and gentleness and self-control. Have these be the hallmarks of your faith. Have these things that are described in the word of God, which, by the way, this is why the word of God in your life is so important because you understand what are the things that are pleasing to God? How may I not be out of order? In Acts chapter 2, I like to read a selection of verses. It says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Now, the takeaway here, if you didn't get it, was the use multiple times, might I add, of this phrase, one accord. The takeaway is that the church was in harmony. The church members in the early church, they, they were connected with each other. They were not at odds with each other. You know, as the church has evolved, if you will, and as it's grown and as it's split into different denominations and different, you know, ways of doing things, methodology has changed. Unfortunately, so has theology. And those are things that I think are defining Positions like what we view God to be and the inerrancy of his scriptures, the truth of his word. But we can take pot shots at each other and we can attack each other and we can critique each other. I mean, I wonder today how many churches or even families would be considered living in a harmonious way of life where they're not at odds with each other. What happens when your children start to get older and they decide that, you know, I'm going to be an adult and I don't want to listen anymore. Your harmony in your home is broken because there is somebody in your home who is acting out of order. 
what happens in your marriage where one of the two start, or even both, start to act out of order of what a godly wife or a godly husband should be. All of a sudden, your harmony is broken down. Not even to mention where that all stems from, that you're no longer in harmony with your creator, with your God. Because what's ended up, what ended up happening was that you found that the breakdown in your relationship with God is now being exemplified and communicated, and then I would even say distributed to those that you have personal relationships with around you. I wonder, as I mentioned, how many churches today have that peace that surpasses all understanding? How many homes have the same? Or are they like what is described in Galatians? The church in Galatia was a very, very, I would say, factious church and fractured church at times. Paul wrote in Galatians 5 verse 15, he said, but if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. He's not writing this to the worldly people. He's writing this to those professing faith in Jesus. You know, our words can be very, very powerful. Powerfully good or powerfully wrong. We can tear people down. We can, we can, we can speak in such a way that it, it, it's, it's embarrassing. I think every one of us here today have probably spoken to somebody in a way that we should not have spoken to them. I think all of us have also been on the receiving end too where you're like, who says those things? Who speaks to people like that? I cannot believe that they would say those things. So we've all been on the giving and receiving end of that particular situation. And we wonder, okay, well, as the body of Christ, how are we to move forward so that we're not out of order? We're hurtful. We're cutting. And then he says, don't be surprised if you devour one another. And then what are you left with as a family if those walls that separated you from saying things that you never should be saying have come down? And now all of a sudden, the, the most hurtful things that you could say to somebody in a marital relationship, you're saying to them. You first had to kick over the warning signs and, the, and, 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 those, and those blockades that separated you from making those kind of comments. And now it's easy to say those things. And now you have to rebuild that respect and you have to rebuild that trust and you have to rebuild that relationship because your words were devouring. You know, the church has been pointed out by Christians as, you know, Christians are the only ones that, you know, they shoot, they're injured. Somebody makes a mistake and then they add to it by the way they treat them. Or somebody's hurting and we don't realize they're hurting. Do you realize that so often people may say certain things, even at church or with other Christians, because they're having a terrible time maybe at home? Or maybe they're wrestling through some things that are just very challenging and hurtful to them, and then they let loose on you. Now listen, I'm not saying that anybody is a doormat. I'm not saying that it's ever appropriate to mistreat people. But what I am saying that in the body of of Christ, there needs to be some graciousness. Nobody likes being talked down to. Nobody likes being disrespected. Nobody likes being hurt by the way somebody treats them. 
But if we ever stop to think that maybe what's coming out of somebody's mouth is indicative of something that's going on in their heart, and maybe as hurtful as it was to hear those things and as awful as it was, the way that they treated, maybe, the way they treated me, maybe there's something more to the story. But whatever the case is, Paul writes and he says, we command you, brethren, church, family, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. Now, to command something here in verse 6 means that this isn't a suggestion. This isn't a suggestion. This is actually a very serious passage of Scripture to withdraw socially from those in the church who are, quote, unquote, out of order. So we could put a modern spin on it, like you wouldn't chill with those people or hang out. You wouldn't kick it with them. You would not spend time with those that are calling themselves brothers that are living out of order. Now, let me take this a little bit further. This was not an excommunication. You know, I've had people come to me and say, I want this person excommunicated out of the church because of something they had going on in their personal relationships. Listen, here, this withdraw yourself from this person who is called a brother or sister in Christ, it's because they're doing something that is out of order and they need to get working again. Contextually, it would appear that there were people who stopped being productive. They stopped working. They were mooching off the body of Christ, as it were, and they were causing problems in doing so. This is also important for us here to note that this is not Paul kicking somebody while they're down, as if they had, you know, hard times economically, or people lost their jobs, and now Paul's coming down on them. The key to understanding this perspective in verse 6 and how this applies to us practically is in this phrase, walks disorderly. This means that it was not just a slip up. Because I think some of us may have the type of personalities that you did something wrong to me one time, you're dead to me. That's it. We will never be friends. We will never be cool. And we will never have any kind of amicable relationship. Maybe you have a personality like that. And maybe you read this and you're like, yes, there's biblical precedent for me to cut off anybody who crosses me for the rest of my life. This is not biblical precedent. (laughs) This is not what he's talking about here. He says, walking disorderly. This means, again, that this was not just a slip-up, but it was a regular pattern of life. Their daily walk was one that was out of order. And so Paul commands them to withdraw from having fellowship with the person, that person who is calling themselves a Christian, but habitually behaving in a way that they ought not to be behaving. In Proverbs chapter 19, verse 15, it says, Laziness casts one into a deep sleep, and an idle person will suffer hunger. Where are we going with this? Well, let's continue on in verse 7. He says, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil, night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. It's always 
better to be able to show others by example than by just saying something. By just saying something, it it might give us a little bit of a direction, but when you show someone, it's powerful. And actually lends great power to what you're trying to communicate because it shows that the same thing you're encouraging others to do, you are doing also. And so Paul says, when I was with you, I wasn't disorderly. I was an example. I wanted to show you what you should be doing. You know, I feel that I've forever been impacted by my pastor in such a way that I find myself often thinking of, how would Chuck handle this situation? What would he do in this worst case scenario? You know, really just even having that kind of relationship with him while I was at Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa for those years and even growing up there had been a great stone of remembrance for me. But when Paul planted the church in Thessalonica, he didn't burden anyone. Anyone. He didn't accept anything from the church. Not because he wasn't entitled to receive support as an apostle, he was an authority, but he wanted to give them the powerful example of what it means to serve, what it means to ease others' burdens and to work hard. And there's something to be said about the visible level of excellence when the church works hard for the Lord. You know, serving the Lord is something we should be doing with all of our hearts. It actually requires us as the church to do something for someone else. And what a novel idea that is in this day and age. With all the things we have going on with our own family, with our own work, with our own needs, with our own problems, with our own stresses, with our own, you know, things that we have to deal with day in and day out. What a novel idea that the church actually comes together and says, what can I do for the Lord that will help someone else? And the only way we're able to do that is because the love of Jesus is being poured out through our heart. And then it's tangibly communicated by the way we serve the Lord in ministering to the body of Christ. You know, as a pastor, I think, you know, growing up in church, having my own times of trying to define what my relationship was going to be as an adult, going off to college and playing sports and then having a 180 and the Lord got a hold of my life and then called me to go into ministry and eventually to plant a church. It's like I've seen things from a whole different perspective. But often, I can completely understand how how it is that the church or a church service is viewed as part of the entertainment industry. You know, where people show up to church hoping to be entertained and really have no desire whatsoever to lift a finger in service to the Lord. Or maybe if they do, it's on their terms and that's whether they feel like it or not that day or they'll show up late or they'll split right after or whatever it want to be. And I remember being in that same position. But then also, they'll want to be invested in, but may not want to invest in anyone else. They'll want to be helped, and they'll want to be ministered to, but they won't think that now I'm equipped to help and to minister to others as a functioning, in-order church is supposed to be working. That we're to be equipped for the work of the ministry. 
so that we go home and we're better spouses, we're better parents, we're better people because of the love of the Lord that's in our hearts. We're less self-centered. We're more others-focused. We become better people to be around. We find that our, our, our range of ministry increases. It broadens all of a sudden. What began as just a simple act of service to the Lord and saying, Lord, I'm going to give you this little part of you know, what you've given me. It compounds. I can't even tell you how amazing it is. And even for our own church here, people who have never been on missions trips have gone on them and now they're leading them. People that have never taught Bible studies had opportunities to teach Bible studies and they're some of our best teachers. People that have never dreamed in a million years that there would even be a place for them in church because they felt like they were so far gone and they had done so many wrong things and they had screwed up their life, but they had found that with Jesus there's a new life, new chances, opportunities to contribute. And we think, oh, I'm going to go bless these people and I'm going to give to them. And you find out that you are so much more blessed than what you thought you were blessing others with. Because God is pleased with that. And he does a special work in your life as you fulfill your ministry, your calling. And then what happens? Is that there is a, a group of people that have come together, individuals that are on fire for the Lord and that have such godly character that they can't help but be committed to the great work that the Lord has going on in the world around them and even locally in their own church and then even on the micro level in their own home. They don't view church by what it can do for them, but rather what they can do for the church. And that's why we ask not what our church can do for us. But we say, Lord, what can I do for the body of Christ? And really, this should be a challenge, I think, for every Christian to contribute in some way for the good. That each and every one of us has a measure of faith and has certain giftings and talents that are to be used. And they'll reach their highest level of fulfillment in service to the Lord. To work hard. To be strong. Not disorderly, not taking handouts, working with your own hands, not burdening anyone. Now, if you're sitting here today thinking and maybe even a little distraught over the possibility that you may have been a burden to someone, then I would tell you I think you're probably already in a good place. However, there's a big difference between someone that may have had a hard time and somebody who may be considered a freeloader and will not work. Somebody that won't put any effort into it. And that's why Paul, Paul writes in verse 10, for even when we were with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Notice he's not saying cannot work, but will not work. Now, there are people in this economy who've lost their jobs. This is not some weird condemnation upon someone's unfortunate circumstances. I know what it's like to be without work, and I know how difficult that is. 
This is not a, as I mentioned, condemnation upon someone's unfortunate circumstances. It's a condemnation upon someone's unfortunate attitude. Because there are people that use the system and that rely on the government or on the church to feed their mouth instead of just getting a job and working hard. There are countries that have socialized welfare where you actually have better pay and better benefits if you do not work. I mean, naturally, I think that is uh, something that hardly incentivizes a person to assimilate back into the workforce. But I remember years ago, when I was working at Calvary Chapel, we found out that there were a group of people that were claiming that they were in grave financial distress time and time again. And what ended up happening is that they would come around on a circuit and they would receive financial assistance and then they would go along their way. And then all of a sudden, about five to uh, maybe a dozen churches that were in the area started talking to each other And started realizing that there was a handful of people, the same people, that were going to 12 different churches with the same story and each receiving financial assistance. And they were using the system completely. They were taking advantage of generosity and the desire to to help people. But is the church not to help people? No, the church is absolutely to be helping people. And there are many ways that it can help, but one of those ways should never be enabling someone to do something that is not right or that will hurt them in the long run. And the effect of idleness is never a good one. And it's been said idle hands are the devil's workshop, but both kids and adults alike can find themselves getting into trouble when they're bored, when they're not doing anything productive, when you're sitting around. Maybe you're alone in your thoughts or you just have no motivation. You have no drive. Nothing will quench that drive, that motivation, like just sitting around and doing nothing. It's hard. And some of us have been in that situation and we know what a challenge that is and how depressing it can be and discouraging it can be. How, how difficult it, it, it could be to get up and, you know, start pounding the pavement and finding a job because you just feel like it's hopeless. You know, there's nothing out there. You know, I, I, just, I, I just don't think there's any, any, any opportunities for me or whatever it might be. You know, I understand that. I know what it's like to not be able to, to pay for things. I know what it's like to, you know, do the most random jobs like hanging blinds and washing cars and maybe to get a six-inch subway on Friday. You know, I mean, it's hard. You can be discouraged. You can feel depressed. But when you're working hard, and you're maybe even breaking a sweat, you're investing yourself in providing for yourself and your family, there's such a sense of fulfillment and value there. That's a good thing. And he says in verse 11, For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. You know what's interesting is that sometimes, you know, we think that being a busybody may confine itself to one of the two sexes. In Timothy, Paul warned the ladies to refrain from gossiping. And the problem was caused by idleness. 
You know, going from house to house, you know, gossiping, getting involved with other people's affairs, saying things they, they, they ought not to be saying. But, you know, this is an equal opportunity employer, if you will. Being a busybody, being idle, getting in other people's business. You think that church life is like reading the National Enquirer or Star or Us Weekly or whatever it might be. In 1 Thessalonians 4.11, he says that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we command you. You know, mind your own business. There's a lot to be said about that. You know, on dictionary.com, it gave me a whole list of synonyms about minding your own business. And it said, don't be nosy. Well, that's not a synonym. It's actually an antonym. But it said, don't be nosy. Don't be a button. Don't be a buttinsky. Don't be an eavesdropper, a gossiper, a meddler, a nosy parker. I guess you park your nose in other people's business. A rubberneck, a blabbermouth, a prattler, a snoop, or a busybody. Don't be any of those things. See, as a Christian... I should be so busy about the work that the Lord has called me to do that I don't have time to get in other people's affairs, at least not uninvited. It would seem that people, ironically, it seems that the people who are so busy in other people's lives are usually the ones that don't have their own lives in order. They're out of order in their own life, and that's why they fit so well in somebody else's area that they may be out of order as well. And when their disorderly life and way of handling things injects itself into someone else's life, the out of order compounds itself. And so, as we cover verse by verse and chapter by chapter and book by book through the entire Bible, here today the problem was that there were people, they just weren't working. They had a whole bunch of idle time. They were not busy about their own work occupationally or their calling, their work for the Lord, and they were affecting those around them. And what I've always very much treasured about the Bible is that the Bible gives solutions for the problems. It doesn't just point out that there's a problem. It gives you a solution. And the solution for this problem is very simple. As we conclude in verses uh, 12 through 18, it says, Now those who are such... If this is you, he's writing to this church saying, if you're acting in such a way, those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that you would work in quietness and eat your own bread. Just work in quietness. And this really describes the life of one who stays busy doing his own work and does not get into other people's affairs. It also says eat your own food. And so being in order as a follower of Jesus... Instead of being out of order, you know, being in order means like, you know, you're, you're actually contributing to the work that is taking place. It would be as if maybe you were in a rowboat and everybody was rowing their little hearts out and you were in the back sipping on an iced tea. You're actually grabbing oar and you are contributing as well. So you're pulling your own weight. And then you receive the blessing that comes from working hard and being able to put food on your own table to work hard, to provide, to, li to live a quiet life. You know, with all the noise that's around us constantly, what a nice thing it is to be said of a family who comes home and lives a quiet life. We can sit and eat our meal that God has provided for us, 
in peace. Our days are filled with our own troubles and our own struggles, so much so that we don't need to go uninvited into somebody else's situations. And in verse 13, he says, But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. Now, it's very important to realize that the people in the church, they're aware of the problems in the church. Because we're relational beings, information can spread pretty fast. We live in that age of social media where information is instantaneous. It's just instantaneous. So the church knows what's going on. They're aware of it. Paul doesn't pretend that there aren't any issues within the church, but instead he addresses those that are at fault, and then he encourages those who are doing well to keep it up. You're doing a good job. Keep doing a good job. With any parent, with any boss or any teacher, coach or the like, I mean, you're not looking for perfect people because there are none. You know, in my home, with my kids... All we're looking for, Ruth, me and Ruth, we're just like, if we tell you that what you're doing is wrong, just take responsibility for it. Okay, I did that, that and it's wrong. I'm sorry. I'll do better next time. That's the best that I, that, that I can see happening in, in my children's lives. You know, often being a pastor, you know, they think, well, pastor kids are supposed to be perfect, and they have this whole thing called PKs that I was finding out about. Oh, the pastor's kid. Oh, yeah, the pastor's kid. Listen, my children are normal children, just like anybody else. And they'll do things they're not supposed to be doing, and they'll do things that they are supposed to be doing, and they're still my children, and I'm going to do the best, along with Ruth, to raise them unto the Lord, just like any parent can do. But in any organization or any family, any church, you're never going to find perfection. You're never going to find everybody doing everything that they're supposed to be doing all the time. And if something does come up where it needs to be addressed, the only thing that you can hope to do is to speak the truth in love and hope that somebody that is in error will receive it, take ownership for it, and then do better next time. And try to change. If somebody's in sin, that they would repent from that sin and turn and follow the Lord with all of their hearts. I mean, that's what we want to see happen, right? We want to see our children walk with the Lord. The Lord wants to see his kids to walk closely with him. And this is important for us as the church. There will always be excuses that can be made. You know, reasons for abdicating responsibility. But in the body of Christ, there is a way of doing things that are in order. Otherwise, you're out of order and you need to be repaired. And so Paul is reinforcing what he stated already in verse 6 where he said, But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. And in verse 14 he says, If anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy. And this is important in verse 15. Do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Here in verse 14, marking the person means that there is a distinction to be made between those that are in order and those that are out of order. I mean, honestly, I don't know what's going on in your home. I'm not a referee in your house for what your communication looks like within your own home. 
But I wonder how we would classify ourselves if we had to honestly drop a classification between those Christians that were in order and those that were out of order. I wonder where we would slot in. I wonder how we individually would be classified. Now, the things that Paul is addressing here are pertaining to the church first. These are brothers and sisters in Christ that we're dealing with today. So why would Paul say something as harsh as we are not to keep company with that person, calling themselves a brother, walking in a disorderly fashion? Well, the answer to that question was already given where it says so that they may be ashamed of their actions, repent, and then get back in working order. Now, this is a hard thing to understand and to implement. But just because it's difficult doesn't mean that we're not to do it. The crucial element is the person communicating such things to someone in error is that their heart should be prepared to address such things as the Lord would address them. Because the person being corrected is not an enemy. Well, they sure feel like it. We're at odds with each other. They feel like an enemy. They're your brother or sister in Christ. They may even be in your own family. The person being corrected is not an enemy, though, granted, it is possible that those on both sides of the conversation may feel as such. Why are you attacking me? Why are you being critical of me? Well, why are you doing the wrong thing? Over and over and over and over and over again. This is not a slip-up. This has become a habit. It's become a lifestyle with you. That's why I need to say such things. It's hard giving correction. And it's hard to receive it, but both are necessary. You know, there were times where my brothers and I had rebellious years in our home. And there are families that I've talked to where their children are going through certain things that were similar, you know, to me when I was growing up. And I remember how my parents communicated to me that there were certain things that were right and there were certain things that were wrong that were based upon God's word. And if I were going to live in their home under their roof and eat their food and enjoy their amenities, (laughs) that there was a certain way that I needed to live. And there were certain things that I needed to do. And if I didn't want to abide by those things and I wanted to do the things that were wrong, I was free to do those things, but yet I would not be able to enjoy the benefits of my home. So you think you're a grown man now and you want to be able to live a certain way? Well, we're not going to enable you and you won't be doing it at our house. And so I had to have a hard, hard conversation with myself. Is it worth it? Is doing the wrong thing right for me? And by God's grace, I concluded, no, it is not. And so in the church, if there's somebody that is calling themselves a Christian, they're saying, I am am a follower of Jesus, but they are time and time and time and time again behaving in a disorderly manner, then they're to be addressed by those that are in leadership in the church, to be confronted on those things. Best case scenario, they say, I'm so sorry, I didn't realize that, I repent, I will go forward in the right direction. And if not, then there are different measures that must be employed, and Paul lays them out for us here in this section. But the person being corrected, they're not the enemy. When I was being corrected, it may have felt that my parents were against me, but they were not. They loved me more than anyone on the earth at that given point in time. 
And now we conclude our study to the Thessalonians with these three final verses of Paul's salutation in verses 16, 17, and 18 where we conclude today. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write. That mark of authenticity, Paul's own hand. And he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Amen. And so in this letter, we have studied end times prophecies. We have studied the rapture. We've studied the great tribulation. We've looked at who the Antichrist was going to be and how he is going to present himself. We looked at how through adversity and difficulty, this church in Thessalonica was birthed, how they abounded in love and in faith, and how the Lord used this church that experienced great difficulties, great struggles, to be a tremendous example to all the churches around them and even to us today. And even in addressing things that were wrong, that needed correction, we find that they received such things. And even today, we receive such things so that we might be strong in our faith, that we might exercise our faith, that we might labor in love, that we might be ready for the second coming of Jesus, and that we might see our church be the church that God has intended and created it to be. And so today, may the Lord bless you, may he keep you, may he cause his face to shine upon you, may he be gracious unto you, may he lift up his countenance upon you and give you that peace which surpasses all understanding, and may it guard your hearts and your minds through Jesus Christ our Lord. And may you take these things that maybe you've been convicted by, or take these things that you may be able to add to your spiritual tool belt and use them in the appropriate manner. In Jesus' name, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you, Lord, for blessing us with this place we call home. We ask, Lord, that you would bless every family as we go our separate ways. We pray, Lord, that you would, Lord, mold us and shape us into those men and women that you've created us to be. Lord, I ask that you would bless all of our children, Lord. I pray that they would continue to grow and develop to be healthy and strong mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually. Lord, I pray for every home, Lord, that is represented here today, that it would be a home where things are done decently and in order, all for your glory. I pray, Lord, for the body of Christ, Lord. I pray that all things may be done decently and in order that the truth would be spoken with love, that you would give us understanding and graciousness to those who may be having a hard time. Lord, we pray for those that need correction, Lord, that they would receive that constructive criticism and be better because of it, even as a coach would instruct an athlete. Lord, I pray that you would please have your Holy Spirit fall fresh upon us today. And again, Lord, we ask for a special blessing upon all the moms. May they have a great afternoon, a great rest of their Sunday, and a wonderful week ahead. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people say, amen. Let's stand, and we're going to close out with a song of worship. And don't forget that after service today, on my left and your right, we have our hospitality tent with just some real cool things to bless you. We have our photo wall. Be sure to get a picture with your mother, your grandmother, with your family, and have a great rest of your day. God bless.